City, City Limits. Limits. Brought to us by the People's Committee for Melbourne every Wednesday at 9am. City Limits is Melbourne's only hour devoted to our urban environment. To transport and planning and housing issues. To privatisations and our utility services. To building and or maintaining a sense of community. 855 on the AM band if we can hear it through the noise and find it through the smog. City City Limits. There we are, acres and acres of tar and cement, and we're here on City Limits. It's the second Wednesday of the month. It's a day we look at energy and related issues, and we're going to be talking today to Dave um, Sweeney, for the anti-uranium campaigner with the Australian Conservation Foundation. I better, I suppose, I better for the start tell us who's in the studio. We've got uh, Eugenie Zubchenko over there. I'm Kevin Good Healy, morning. and Meg. Of course, just people are asking where Meg is. No one has, but we'll <laughs> tell them anyway. <laughs> we want to know where Meg we is. We want to know where Meg is. Meg, um, Meg is filling in at the, at the, at the um, community legal centre she works at. She's um, someone's left, and she's filling in till they replace mm. that person. But that means she can't come in here until that happens. So yep. she'll be a few weeks until it takes takes them as long as it takes them to uh, to fill the position. So that's where Meg is, and she, but she will be back. Out serving the community. That's right, out there doing her bit, doing her job. Um, Dave Sweeney coming on to talk about several things, but particularly the, the fact that the day before the election was called, the Environment Minister, so-called, who doesn't believe in climate change, was a good start to be Environment Minister in this government, um, she approved, as we know, two proposals. Um, one was the final federal appro- approval for Adani, and the second one was the uranium mine out in Western Australia, and um, and Dave's going to talk about both those, but particularly the uranium one. And we're going to he's going to stay on the line while we play a t- eight or ten minute piece by a local Indigenous person out there called Debbie Carmody, who's a well known activist. And she she's actually was actually on the radioactive show here last Saturday. People might have heard it there at ten o'clock on Saturday mornings. Um, but she it was. An interview, but really it was a speech by her uh, making making the point, and it's a, it's, it's a wonderful um, expression of the impact on the indigenous communities that mm. these things have. So, and Dave will then comment on that as well. So that's so on today's program, isn't that good? Mm, and we'll go to that about twenty past because um, we'll give it till the end of the show. It's a lot to talk about. Also mm. with Dave, the other issues going on at the moment, of course, are exploration for oil and gas in the Great Australian Bight, where companies want to do that. And there was a huge protest at Torquay just last week about it, um, the impact on that. And indeed, the member for Karangamite, who's fighting for a seat, turned up and said she supported the protesters, by the way. Oh, good. <laughs> yeah, that's right. <laughs> and uh, similarly, down at uh, Hastings, of course, there's the, the, um, the proposal by AGL to put a liquefied natural gas plant there, which will cause enormous damage to what's a pristine and... and and fragile environment at, at um, Western Port. Yeah. And um, there's a massive campaign down there against it. It's currently before the government for an environmental assessment. But uh, again, Greg Hunt, the member who generally would support all these things, has come out and told the rallies he, he left a message for the rally that he opposed it. But in the bit I heard of the rally, <laughs> once his <laughs> name was mentioned and he said he, he supported them, they all booed and hissed. <laughs> <laughs> so. <laughs> That didn't go down that well. Oh. Um, poor didn't didn't quite have the political no, impact you were expecting. No, poor Greg, a bit of a tragedy. I'm going to pour some tea, by the way. Which yeah. cup do you want today? You chose last time. Oh, I yeah. have oh, the pretty one. That, yeah, Which the is the pretty one? one. Mm. 
The, the, the one on your yeah. On my one. right. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> so it's on. You've gone your it's, left. It's a beautiful uh, kind of creamy '60s style uh, coffee cup. For the my, well, mine there. says premium coffee, but anyway, <laughs> um, you, it was a good choice because you went to your left and leaves me with my left. So we've politically good. kept the program going. <laughs> it's, it's bloody good. Okay, there we are. That's the tea. Mm, yeah. um, Look, I, I going way back, um, uh, I've been around election campaigns for a long, long time. I don't get involved in them now directly at all, but uh, I'm past all that. But um, back in the days when the ALP in Victoria was uh, was quite progressive and I was in it, which is one of the reasons it was progressive, of course. Um, but, uh, Humble as ever. <laughs> that's right. Uh, in 69, I, I was working as a journal, but I also I ran the publicity for the Victorian campaign in the federal election that year. Bill Hartley, the state secretary, um, got me to do it and threw, threw me in an office in St Kilda Road somewhere. Um, <laughs> but what I discovered then, and I've discovered with candidates all over the place, that even in the most unwinnable seat, the, the, the closer it gets to the election, the candidate starts to believe that she or he can actually win. Yeah, uh, I mean, I think it's a necessary survival strategy for maybe, the world of but, politics. <laughs> but no, some some just run. I mean, I ran for Ballarat Province as a young bloke in Did 1967 you? for state election no um, um, on the guarantee I couldn't win. <laughs> uh, and in fact, in the last week, someone said there are, you're a rough chance of winning. So I ran home and wrote out a case for a recount in case I won. Uh, <laughs> Hit under the blanket. <laughs> that's right. Uh, but that aside, uh, there was a big ad in the in the Herald Sun of all places, of course, in the in the last few days. The United Australia Party will win government, and there's Clive. Yeah. Now I've known candidates to start to believe they can win the unwinnable, but this is ridiculous. Yeah. I mean, this is this is taking it to extreme. Probably a, a good full, reason why you shouldn't page. vote. Bright yellow ads. Yeah. yeah, a man that disillusioned should never get your vote. Um, we is on track to win government, and he says all the the reports about their low, um, how low their their vote is. In fact, is fake news. Fake news. Oh, there you go. Yeah, Australian should that's not. That's a loaded term to throw about. Australian should not read or believe fake news, which is a good excuse to stop reading that ad. I would think. Yeah, uh, at that takes very a lot point. of um, lots, lots of cues from our friend across the pond, doesn't he? <laughs> he does. He does. So, I mean, if he was really on track to win, then why would it be necessary to take full page ads out in all the major newspapers? Oh, just to make sure he does win and let <laughs> us know to he's going to win. Us. Let us know he's going to win. Exactly. That's, yeah, that's right. That's what you use advertising for. Uh, I mean, he's paying. For it with the the wages yeah. and entitlements of his workers, so fair enough. That's sort of a bit of a bit of a worker thing in there somewhere. Um, some stories also aren't really worth reading. Um, no, like well, lots of them. I mean, but there was one on the front page of the Financial Review on Monday on the trail in search of the real bill, and um, it goes. You know, it talks about how he, it's difficult to know who the real bill is. It's a thing, but it, but the story goes on the front page, and then there's a double spread inside. So if you wanted, if you didn't look at the ending first, you'd read on and on, thinking that this story is going to tell me what the real Bill is. Do you, does the does the reader know who Bill is when uh, they're reading the headline? Well, there's a photo of Bill Shorten that tells you Bill Shorten, yeah, the real Bill, yeah, that's right, yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, and you you read if you just just read on and on to the to, and thinking, well, sometime soon this story is going to tell me who the real Bill is. You get to the very last paragraph, and it says, "If he does become prime minister, the public may finally grow to learn who the real Bill Shorten is." There you go. So you read the whole story, <laughs> <laughs> and they still didn't tell you. 
The man of mystery, <laughs> the man of many faces. <laughs> so I just thought I'd mention that. Uh, uh, just the way the media yeah. operates. His, um, his approval mm. ratings as a leader aren't mm. fantastic, are yeah. they? I mean, it's similar to people listening to City Limits and having no idea what we're talking about, <laughs> what, no, I suppose. Completely different. What oh, is it? About? Okay, right. Mm. Yeah. Mm. Sip of tea. Um, this is an interesting little story. Uber. Um, Uber made a gross profit of $785 million in Australia last year and paid just $8.5 million in company tax, which is a bit over 10%. It's probably 12% or something, mm. I think, isn't it, roughly? What kind of company is Uber? Well, Uber's the, um, you know, the, the oh, drive and Uber. eat, drive and yep. Uber eats and all that. Yep, yeah, yep, Uber. Yep. On the same page. Uh, okay. <laughs> yeah, no, no, it's on your... Yeah, it's the Sorry, page. I haven't had my coffee this morning, as you page, might be able to tell. <laughs> it's, page, it's page 17. <laughs> that's, the, that's the same Forgot page. Forgot the name of the leader uh, of the opposition. That's right. That's Bill, Bill. <laughs> um, but the interesting thing is that um, it... Paid a of the seven eighty five million, it paid a six hundred ninety one million service fee, otherwise unexplained in the accounts, um, to its American American um, company, to its American you know head yeah. company, um, and um, so that meant it only um, you know it, it reduced Dodge its profits tax, and all. Yeah. In fact, it, it declared a loss officially. It declared oh. an after tax loss. Right, of course. Um, and um, but this and it's pointed out that they all do this, you know. The but of of the seven eighty five, as I say, it paid six ninety one as a service charge, unexplained, to its American parent. And it's a similarly, service fee. <laughs> that's right, service fee. Um, however, with no um, no such research and development occurring in Australia, etc., because it claims a lot of its research and development, the company's local tax bill is likely to face scrutiny alongside those of Facebook and Google's local subsidiaries. On Tuesday, they both lodged 2018 financial reports where most receipts generated from Australians were funnelled offshore, with the tech giants excusing their tax-minimising behaviour as fair payment for services rendered by other subsidiaries. Critics have pointed out that most of the money Australians paid for Google advertising in 2018 went straight to its subsidiary in Singapore, which levies 17% corporate tax against Australia's 30%, and so the story goes on. But, mm. uh, gee, it's surprising to see them actually uh, trying to... Or they, ne- they, never, they never avoid tax. They're not tax avoiders or tax dodgers. They, they always claim they pay, and they always do. They pay... Their, their legal price. tax entitlements. Yeah. Their legal tax entitlements. There you go. Yes. So convenient that they have that yes, you know, is, offshore account to transfer some of the money to. <laughs> well, of course. And uh, in fact, one mob, when they, they were sprung having, having everything in the Cayman Islands, said they went to the Cayman so they could pay their right taxes. So, which right. was probably, from their point of view, to quite the Cayman right. Islands. Yeah, that's right. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> Fair enough. So there you are. Um, and in a case. Um, Last year, in fact, there's this case uh, where, where Westpac is supposed to have broken the law in its lending, um, in its lending arm, uh, which is most of its arms, of course. But it, by, by in fact, um, by in fact, not taking into account what the customers actually tell them in terms of their ability to pay, and they've been charged with 
you know, all sorts of crimes over that. Um, and the the thing is, they now claim they broke the law on that basis 261,987 times, <laughs> each one carrying a penalty. And they tried to settle it last year, in fact, uh, for I can't think how many million now, it probably says it here, oh, it was 35 million. They were going to pay up to settle the whole thing. But the court it went to, which is a bit unusual, rejected the settlement because courts mostly do accept settlements of that sort. But anyway, it knocked it back. So the case is now in court being heard, but uh, we'll see what happens. But um, 261,987 times isn't a bad effort in breaking the law, <laughs> I would have thought. Consistently. Uh, yeah, that's right. Um, and... Um, and on that basis, Labor says that Facebook, Ikea and Nike, McDonald's and other companies, Google, are going to be targeted by them in terms of raising the money they say they're going to raise by making them pay their proper taxes. Isn't that mm. wonderful? But on the other side of that, there's, um, there's another, another side of that, by the way. Mm. Yeah. Oh, it's it's nice you? to see that you can see the other side, Kevin. I can, and so can Kate Carnell. Now, Kate was one of the – Kate at one stage headed one of the business profits councils, you know, the Australian business or whatever, uh-huh. they, all these sundry bodies that represent business. She was one of the big spokespeople for the business community. I think she ran, may run even the retail grocers or something at one stage. But she's now been made, under this government, she was made the small business and family enterprise ombudsman. So she's independent, totally independent now. Oh, good. And in that independent role, she's come out and attacked the tax office for being too harsh on business. So there is another side to it, you yeah, see. Yeah, good. Yeah, that's right. She says they're deploying controversial debt recovery tactics on a significant number of small businesses. It's quite terrible, really, what they're doing. Um, <laughs> so there you are. Yeah. So there are two sides. I just want to put that on. Fairness does down. exist. Oh, yes. <laughs> Not according to Kate, though. <laughs> <laughs> Tell you that. Um, the, now, interestingly enough, too, the other, this, is, this is quite a serious story. After the, the terrible Black Saturday bushfires um, many years ago, and most of us knew someone, Barry Johnson, a draft resistor whom I knew well, was one of the people burned in that fire. Mm. Um, uh, when I say draft, people might not understand it. A Vietnam War draft resistor. We go high cost. We still talk about it in our in our terms. Um, and Barry uh, was unfortunately killed in that fire. But um, the uh, following the, the royal the royal commission that followed it recommended that in various places where the the wires the electric wires may cause fires, they should be put underground. And one of those places is up at um, Spring Hill near Trentham. In fact, it's, that, it's a beautiful area. It's right on the edge of the Wombat State Forest. I know it pretty mm. well. And um, the and Power Corps, the company up there, was going to put it underground, but now it's now it's decided it won't uh, because it said that it's um, it's due to escalating costs. So now the costs are more important than the bushfire and people who mm. might be killed by it of and the course, bush that yeah. might be destroyed by it and all those animals in the bush that might be destroyed by it. Yeah, so, and all the personal property that will be destroyed by it. That that's right. That is property so, of the company. Exactly. Mm. So, um, and resident Christine Arnold said her property was among scores identified within at least five bushfire communities where the plans had been canned. So there's others, in fact. There's one at, uh, there's, there's Lionville, Bellato, Littlehampton and the Sisters north of Terang where they're also saying they won't go because the costs are too much. So, Obviously, it's a case of, well, if the cost's too much, you just don't have to do it. You don't have to do it, no? No. Makes sense. No. Well, I mean, these utility companies have so much responsibility, right? And yeah, that's right. Well, they've got to <laughs> keep the thing running. It. Yeah. yeah. 
Yeah, those bushfires are so disastrous. That's one we might even follow up on because it's it is a fairly serious matter, isn't yeah, it? Yeah, it'd be good to talk to some community members out there. Yeah, so that they think yeah. About it. Yeah, I know someone who lives out there or at Blackwood near there, so um, I might see if she knows someone who can tell us. Get the yeah. inside scoop. That's right. Well, <laughs> I don't think we've got the inside scoop. It's already been at the Herald Sun. <laughs> but nonetheless, <Yeah. laughs> see how we go. Deeper inside. <laughs> one, thing, one thing we didn't mention last week on the um, when we were talking about transport was that, um, was that uh, Scott Morrison has promised all these wonderful transport initiatives in Melbourne all to do with motor cars, including... Um, car parks at 25 rail stations. But if you look at the list of rail stations, gee whiz, there does seem to be a lot of them in marginal seats. In fact, um, <laughs> in fact, maybe all of them. Uh, is, this, and the, is this the pork barrelling that I learned about oh, last no, week? Now, please, I'm not saying there's any <laughs> pork barrelling here, but it's... Uh, it, they're all in, and they're all in, um, in, in eastern suburban, you know, the, the nice tree seats. I was going to say, I bet yeah. many of them would be in the eastern suburbs. Yeah, they, they all are. eastern suburbs. Brighton Beach, North Brighton, Sandringham, Seaford, <laughs> Elsterwick, Balaclava. Um, yeah, they're all in that area. There's none out. The, the bottom thing says Northern Rail Line, whatever that is. It's the only one that is not in the south or southeast of oh, Melbourne. Oh, dear. Uh, they're all in those, those lovely it's tree It's so transparent, areas. isn't it? It is. And he's also promised a $150 million congestion-busting road project. And again, all the roads are in that part of Melbourne, Dorset and Canterbury Roads, um, oh, Ferntree Gully, um, and all these are, are going to do the, you know, wonderful jobs. There will be $50 million to build a link on Dorset Road between Hull Road and the Maroona Highway in Croydon with the promise of significantly improved journeys for the 28,000 vehicles which use this section of road each day. Busting congestion is especially important for etc., etc. Um, another one is um, the expected um, $24.5 million for a city-bound third lane on Canterbury Road between Dorset Road and Liverpool Road in Bayswater, improving travel times for the 30,000 people working in the Bayswater business precinct, etc. But again, they're all in that part of Melbourne. Mm. I mean, Croydon and Ferntree Gully are slightly different from Sandringham and Brighton, but still... But there's still eastern seats that are vulnerable. Yeah, That's definitely. the point, isn't it? Do yeah. you want a bit more tea? Or... I would love a bit more tea. All right, um, also, the well, kind of... I'd better take your cup because otherwise we're going to cause oh, microphone damage here of great sorts. Um, I was going to say those um, Bayswater and Croydon and places like that are kind of on that major arterial route that we were talking yes. about last year that yes. many people drive down and would be like a key location for some public transport improvement. Absolutely. Yeah. Mm. yeah. That's Interesting. We've right. yeah. <laughs> got a few other things to raise, but look, we won't raise them. We'll go into Dave Sweeney because that's much more important than our raving on. Uh, well, my raving on, really. You're just agreeing. Um, <laughs> and, hey, give me a bit more credit than that. Oh, yeah, that's right. You're making intelligent comments. <laughs> thank you, thank you. That's... <laughs> you're just making intelligent comments. I'm just raving on. Um, okay, let's get to Dave. Yeah. Dave Sweeney from the Australian Conservation Foundation. He's their anti-uranium campaigner. Uh, I keep calling. Sometimes I call him uranium campaigner, and people might think he's out there pushing it. Um, Dave, just that just reminded me. Um, you were pretty impressed, I take it, going back a few years when a former candidate for the Australia, for the uh, anti-nuclear party, a former Senate candidate, once he was a Labor Environment Minister, actually said he was proud to be opening a uranium mine. Did you? Was that? Did that impress you no end? Yes. Good morning, Kevin. Good morning, Eugenie. Yeah, that was. Uh, you know, there's been easier days um, than that, um, and I think you know it highlights very much how uh, 
even with good intentions, there's there's massive institutional barriers in Australia. There's massive bias. There's massive uh, stacking of the deck uh, in favour of um, basically the big end of town and dirty extractive industries and and um, and the closed door mates club. Um, mm. So I think you know, and this what what we're talking about today. I caught the introduction in talking about you know our fast tracked dodgy energy approvals across the board. Um, and, uh, you know, we're seeing that um, writ large, you know, like a, obviously a, a, an election context, like you said before, it focuses candidates' minds, but it also really focuses um, how decision-making is made, what gets prioritised, and in those closing days, what a government chooses, what files they choose to sign and, and continue and what promises they choose to shred and act like they never happened. And we've seen that writ large in the last month in this country. Mm. And, of course, we, we're going to talk specifically today about the fact that the day before the election was called, Melissa Price, the minister, uh, approved a new uranium mine in Western Australia. Um, what are the details of this, uh, Dave? Yeah, well, there's a large uranium deposit in the Midwest region of WA called Uliri. Um, it's uh, it's a... Uh, WA's largest uranium deposit. It's a, uh, owned by a Canadian company called Cameco, which is the world's largest dedicated uranium miner. And um, it's currently the focus of uh, an appeal in the West Australian Supreme Court where traditional owners and the Conservation Council of Western Australia have taken legal action to challenge the validity of an earlier state approval, which in... Uh, 2017 was given against the run of play just before the Barnett government, which was later knocked out of office, um, uh, went into caretaker mode, the state minister, against the explicit advice of the State Environment Protection Agency, fast-tracked the approval of this mine. Now, this uh, that approval is in active challenge now. It's before the WA Supreme Court. And the federal government, M- Melissa Price, the federal environment minister, had given clear commitments to the community in public, to uh, key stakeholder groups, that she would not advance federal approval of this until the situation concerning the legitimacy and legality of the state approval had been resolved one way or the other, Kevin. So mm. that, was the, that was the promise, that was the deal, that was the stated commitment. Um, there was no reason and nothing had changed to make any material difference in that, yet the day before the election uh, was called, she... Um, she signed a federal approval for Uliri. There is then 14 days, just to add insult to it and calculation to it, she signed that on the 10th of uh, April. There's a 14-day period between a minister making a decision and that decision having to be made public, put in the public realm. So that decision was notified, made on the 10th of April, but notified, put in the public realm on an obscure part of Environment Australia's website just before close of business on April 24. So just That's before the last possible day, day. Just before, yeah, the longest possible day, yeah. but also placed, so it's just before the Anzac Day, long weekend, it's just before, it's after that Easter time, it was that really sort of um, fluid diaries up in the air, everyone sort of fabricating a cough when they ring up the boss so they can make a week out of three <laughs> days. Um, it was an extraordinarily cynical um, exercise and it's... Uh, you know, even federal labour, like Shorten, looked at it and called it shonky. Yeah. It is extraordinarily cynical, and it, it has really failed the pub test, the sniff test, and even our sense is that that 
um, many in the uranium sector, the business Australian, which is no friend to the anti-nuclear movement in Australia, said this was a political decision that will bring pain for no gain and has annoyed others in the mining sector because it makes it look like deals are done on their behalf. Well, this was a deal done on behalf of the mining sector and the big end of town and the Mineral Council of Australia, and it's, um, it's profoundly dodgy. Mm. And of course, Adani was approved in the same day. Um, we'll come to may come to that later. But uh, so she really got a couple out of the way pretty quickly. Absolutely, it was very much a case of look, what do we need to get out the door before we might be kicked out the door? Mm. And that's what changed when you said nothing's changed. What changed was the day after the election, there might have been a government that wouldn't approve it. Of course. Yeah, absolutely spot on, and you're right. That is that is uh, a material difference. I was talking silly me about you know, right. environmental approvals oh, and this, that, and the other, and processes. Silly yes, you, Dave. Pol- silly you. That's silly right. Politics <laughs> but but in terms of that point, though, I mean, if um, well, one, well, I suppose there's two factors. What role does the Western Australian government play in this from here, and can a government after the election change it? Uh, yes, and yes. The, the role of the Western Australian government is uh, there's a range of uh, what they see or what is termed as secondary approvals that are required um, and what we are urging of the Western Australian Government, that when they came into office, they were elected on a very clear no uranium policy. Mm. Very sadly, they did that ALP thing, which the ALP often do of saying, oh, look, there's real world and there's sovereign risk and there might be compo and it's all a bit hard. We wouldn't have done it, but it's through the door, but we promise we won't do any more. So there were four projects in Western Australia that enjoyed various levels of state or federal approval when the WA, McGowan, Labor government formed office. There was multiple, like there was 100 exploration projects, but there were four that had some level of rubber stamp. And Labor, we put forward the case very strongly that none of these are legitimate. They've all got flaws. The process has been rushed. It's been politically driven, et cetera, et cetera. Labor took the... uh, took the view that, look, four are through the door um, and the rest we will not get a look in. Um, We're now... Uh, our positioning to Labor is to say, well, you still should review these four on their merits and on their merits they should not be advanced because in each one there's site-specific and procedural and regulatory deficiencies that mean they shouldn't go ahead. But they're not the bravest crowd. Um, On a federal level, there is an enormous amount the federal government can do. We strongly believe, and we're now detailing uh, uh, legal options in a case, that the Minister, Price, has failed in her duty to actively reflect and represent her key piece of legislation, the so-called EPBC, the Environment Protection Biodiversity Conservation Act. That's the existing federal laws. Now, Labor's promised that they'll change and review and improve and update federal environmental laws. And we'll be saying to Labor, this is a clear example where the environment has been put secondary and subsidiary to ideological and political concerns, and you need to have a look at this. It's a good start that Bill Shorten has realised that it's shonky. It's a good start. Tony Burke, the Shadow Environment Minister, came out on the same day and said, where's Melissa Price? Why isn't she defending this? Where are the conditions? What are the the checks and balances? So Labor see, you know, on a sniff test level, but that's fine in opposition, but should they form government, they then have a responsibility to ensure that 11th hour dodgy dealings and corner cutting doesn't get cemented into, oh, there's nothing we can do because you're the federal government and there's plenty you can do and there's plenty you need to do. Mm. Yeah, I mean, it really, something needs to be done, right? You can't have political parties not following due process like this. Um, No, because I suppose the other thing here, um, 
Eugenia, is that, you know, like, politicians are going to go, but, like, what they're talking about here is mining at a depth of 10 to 15 metres, an area of West Australia that is currently intact and of high conservation value and very high cultural value, Seven mm. Sisters Dreaming and lots and lots of stuff, significant sites on it, mm. 10, uh, 10 to 15 metres deep, 2.5 k's wide, 20 kilometres long. Oh like, God. imagine the most massive yeah. swimming pool in the world just dug out. Now, that would, if it goes ahead release 35 million tonnes of radioactive tailings. So material that's currently cocooned, secure, would be dug mm -hmm. up, pulverised, treated on the surface and able to move in what is a very windy area and able to move in ground and surface water. Wow. So there's, you know, 2,500 hectares cleared, 10 billion litres of water sucked up and a direct extinction threat. And this is the one that we are putting a lot of effort and thinking into because of the EPBC Act. Mm. There is a direct extinction threat to 11 subterranean species at this site. The WAEPA, wow. the WAEPA, in its advice to the State Minister, which was unusual for it to make such strong advice, equally unusual for a State Minister to disregard it at the 11th hour, the WAEPA said, do not approve or advance this mine because it poses a direct extinction threat. Not just that it will hammer a few species that appear somewhere else, a direct extinction threat. Now, since Melissa Price signed off on this, what's happened is that there's been a massive international report. Some listeners would be aware. It's rolled out and it said there's a million species mm. at risk of extinction. Well, a 11, million. A million. Yeah, now, they, 11 of, of those... The UN report came out two days ago. Yeah. That's, that's right. right. Now, that, it's, it's, it's a startling figure. It's a shocking figure. If, if there's not, uh, you know, a, an alarm call, a red light flashing for that, um, we are the frog in the warming water. You know, we need to act and get fed income about this. And in this but case, 11 of right, that right. Be, 11, sorry, I just finished. Yeah, 11 yeah. of that million are directly at this place. Yeah, well, I mean, in this case also, didn't wasn't it put to the company that uh, they should ensure that these things do not become extinct, these, these species? And indeed, they, they, their response was, we can't guarantee that. But it, despite saying that, they were then given approval. Mm. That is exactly right. Um, I love city limits. I love you, Mob. You really, <laughs> you really do some homework. It, it, that is exactly right. They, the, the initial condition that the Federal Environment Department drafted for the Minister, Minister, should you consider at a future point after the court case, etc., etc., these would be some conditions. One of them was that the company, Cameco, the proponent, demonstrate, not just, you know, promise, demonstrate that its activities will not lead to extinction, as identified by WAEPA. Cameco came back, and we've got the documents because of uh, uh, a return to order and Senate questions and, and the discovery of documents through the Senate process. Cameco came back and said that's unreasonable and unachievable. Mm. So what they had to come back with then, with the condition, the strict, stringent, high-tech, well-done Australian government condition they now have, is act to ensure. <laughs> you know, I'll act no to responsibility ensure whatsoever. I'll, I will act to ensure that I'm handsome, intelligent and attractive yeah. and rich, but yeah. it won't make a difference. But it you might, you might take that seriously yourself. They won't. Um. <laughs> it's just—it's—it's an extraordinary water down. What it is is a clear water down of uh, an express commitment that gives effect 
do a reasonable thing. Like an environment minister should protect the environment. An environment mm. minister should not license extinction. And there's the agencies, the Federal Environment Agency, the WA Environment Protection Authority, who are saying to their relevant state and federal ministers, this isn't cutting it, this shouldn't go ahead. If you are thinking it should go ahead, this is the minimum responsible position. And those advice, that expertise, those checks and balances are being ripped up and we're being told the, the Mining Council, the Mineral Council of Australia rolls out and says there'll be massive jobs, even though there's not. The uranium sector's in the doldrums. The, the uh, federal government rolls out and says, oh, there'll be stringent checks and balances, even knowing that they have watered down the whole thing. So it is very cynical. It is very shabby. It's indeed shonky. And it has profound, adverse, long-term cultural and environmental implications. And you're playing politics on our shared planet when it is being hammered. It's completely unacceptable. Mm. Yeah, it's just terrifying to me that there's so few, like you say, checks and balances that it can get, we can get to this stage. No argument there, absolutely. <laughs> you know, and, and again and again, and that's again and again the importance of civil society sector, the importance of, of like, Environmental Defenders Office, the importance yeah. of public media, um, in because we provide, um, like, we punch above our weight, but we provide actually a check and balance. We provide a bit of amplification and a bit of a, a spotlight yeah. Because there will be good people in the West Australian Environmental Protection Agency who have diligently done their job and recommended it not go ahead mm. and believe, well, that should be what the minister does. The minister takes yeah. it over. The minister rips it up and they then feel constrained. Yeah. There will be good people in Environment Australia who say there should be, that they must prove that this will not kill critters in water. Yeah. And then the minister rips it up and they will feel constrained. And one good thing about the 3CRs of the world, the ACFs of the world, the Aboriginal community activists of the world is that we don't feel constrained. This only makes us feel more outraged and more committed to raising our voices and strategically intervening to stop this sort of absolute blank check to destruction. Yeah. I was going to ask you, Dave, if... Um this kind of reminds me of the Rocky Hill um, case that we were talking about earlier this year. Do you reckon there could be a similar process that ends up happening here where the Environment Defender's Office gets involved? I think we'll be looking at um, uh, a legal challenge to this, Eugenia. Um, you look at it and, you know, there's this clear uh, trail of, of um, circumvented conditions and fast-tracked approvals. Mm. And there's a clear trail of political interference and political motivation. Mm. One of the difficulties we face, and many listeners, no surprise, don't need to be sitting down, many listeners of 3CR, mm -hmm. is the vast difference between law and justice. Um, and that's the difficulty that we face often. There is... Uh, whether or not um, this is compliant, you know, maybe the condition that says you must, to your best efforts, endeavour to, ticks the box that they have expressed a concern or identified this issue mm. but they haven't addressed it they haven't dealt with it they haven't honestly made a difference um so we need to try and find a course of action a form of words and an approach that tries to bridge that significant gap between law and justice between the expectation of the community and the delivery of the politicians in the corporate sector and we'll do that we uh there's there's a very strong sense amongst traditional owners there's, there's three traditional senior women who are party to a state action now. They're devastated and sad. 
that this um, approval has been given and in the way it's been given. In their language, Yaliri means place of death. Mm. Like they don't go there, you know, you don't stay there permanently and you there's ceremony there and you move on. Um, and so, you know, they're, they're not backing away. Conservation Council WA is not backing away. The wider environment groups and, you know, um, it's really good that there are public interest lawyers and opportunities. So we'll, um, you know, I can't prom I wish I could say, oh, we're going to stop this. We will do everything we can to stop this through the courts and through the procedural mechanisms. We'll do that also through the Court of Public Appeal. Eugenia, we'll do that also through that. Mm. And the other thing that's in this which is interesting is that before I made a mention that the uranium uh, industry and sector, as Kevin's spoken about before, it's really in the doldrums. It, it, it's really had its uh, been cut off at the knees after the Australian fueled Fukushima accident or crisis in 2011. Now, um, the, uh, the um, price is down and Cameco has said... Um, the Canadian company, they've said, we're not going to develop it. They're challenging market circumstances. And we welcome the approval, but we're not going to be moving to develop it in a hurry in the short to medium term. Mm. So here's this approval out the door against the run of play, against the promise, against the, the expert advice, and the company aren't even going to... Like, there's not going to be big yellow trucks and people with five years. <laughs> no, just as a segue into this, because... Um the, the difference between law and justice is something our Indigenous communities know full well, Dave. And um, I know you've agreed to stay on the line. We've got an 8 minute 49 take from last Saturday's um, Radioactive program with Debbie Carmody, one of the women out there in that area. Um, and she makes those points wonderfully. And um, just stand by to listen to it. And, um, and we'll ask you to comment when we come to the end of this 8 minutes 49 seconds. All right, let's have a listen. My name's Debbie Carmody. I'm... Anangal and Spinifex person living in Kalgoorlie Boulder. It's disappointing how the Federal Environment Minister Melissa Price sidelines and erodes the rights of First Nations people by not listening to our voices in a respectful and appropriate way where our concerns are taken seriously and are a major factor in any decision made. In fact, Melissa Price is a good example of how dominant white notions of superiority work. She has totally dismissed the black voice, the voice of First Nations people who live and work on the land nearby, who practice social, cultural, religious and political activities on the land, which is the foundation not just for our cultural survival, but our economic survival. Melissa Price has marginalised our voice, which erodes democracy and insults us as if we are simply bit players under the influence of the environmental movement, when the reality is we are First Nations people who hold sovereignty, which has never been, um, never been ceded, and our tukulba, our laws that govern Every aspect of our lives is powerful and strong. And for Melissa Price to dismiss our Dukulpa, our constitution, is really a reflection of her character, disrespectful and arrogant. There are always risks to community when transporting yellow cake, whether by road or rail. 
with accidents it can lead to exposure. You can't guarantee the safe transportation of uranium oxide. So we want to protect people and the environment from the effects of any uranium exposure. It has been proposed that the uranium would be transported from Yaliri to Kalgoorlie and then railed to either the Port of Fremantle or over to South Australia. Now, this is a big issue for Ningamaya community, which is just outside of Kalgoorlie and sits near the Trans-Australian Railway Line because their community has been targeted to be uh, the site for the proposed transport hub in Kalgoorlie where the uranium oxide from Yaliri will arrive and then be put onto uh, trains. Now, the people of Ningamaya have been neglected by the state and federal government for years and is basically really a shanty town. And we believe that this has been the case because the government wants the people of Ningamaya to move. They want to close the community down to make way for the proposed transport hub. Only a couple of months ago, a uh, representative from the state government went out there and asked people if they wanted to move. People said, no, this is our home. Where would we go? Mm. I think it's very sneaky of the government to casually ask people to move out of their homes when the mm. hidden agenda for that request is to set up a transport hub to transport uranium oxide. In fact, it's outrageous when you think about it. And mm. the people who live there are very disadvantaged and they are powerless. And it is always First Nations people who are on the front line fighting against big miners who come in and think that they're, you know, it's their complete right to desecrate the land, poison the land, treat First Nations people as if they are the problem, mm. never mind the fact that we... Um, were born from this land. We will never leave this land. We didn't come from overseas country. We are the original inhabitants, the First Nations people from this land. You know, white people come and go, but we aren't going anywhere. This is mm. our place. We, we don't want uranium mining at Yaliri. We don't want uranium oxide to be transported. We don't want to be forcibly removed um, from Ningamaya to make way for a transport hub which will store uranium before um, it's transported by rail across our land. You and your community um, are fighting to stop another uranium mining project um, at Mulga Rock, Debbie, not far from Kalgoorlie. Can you tell us a little bit about this place and, and your connection? Um, Mulga Rock is 240 kilometres east, northeast of Kalgoorlie in the Great Victorian Desert. It contains the country's biggest underdeveloped uranium resources. The project is 100% owned and operated by Vimy Resources. The landscape out there is beautiful. Soft desert sands, brilliant orange sand hills. There's um, these Beautiful sand plains of yellow and orange with diverse mammals and reptile fauna and distinctive um, hummock grasslands covering the earth. 
my father remembered going there as a child with his mother when they would walk, you know, through country. It's a it's a warm place, a safe place where Dad would camp with his mother and family between soft desert sands. It is a important social and cultural place. Now that road that leads into the proposed mine has graves there, and yet the company said it had talked to all First Nations people. And obviously they haven't, because I don't think they know about the graves. There's also water, a water hole close by that sits in uh, Mattawonga country, and the Mattawonga people are concerned about the water and animals being poisoned from the proposed mine, and that water that water runs all the way down south and will impact on country there. Well, our sovereignty has never ceded, and that needs to be recognised, but you know, whether this gets recognised or not, the fact remains we have sovereignty. Our DNA existed way before the coming of white man. I would like to see the end of social injustices. I would like to see wealth equity. These are all issues that white people actually need to look at. They need to look at the truth of invasion and colonisation and until that happens, only then will we as a nation mature. And just in conclusion, um, we as First Nation peoples do have serious concerns about uranium mining in our region. We do not want it. We are concerned about the health impacts on local communities, radioactive waste management, transport of uranium all through communities, because that adds um, serious health risks. We do not want a radioactive outback. There is no such thing as safe uranium mining. We are concerned about the, the health, health risks to workers and communities that will be exposed if there is an accident exposing them to radiation from the uranium ore itself and from inhalation of radon gas. Wanty uranium, leave it in the ground. Okay, and um, that's Debbie uh, Carmody, one of the locals out there in that area fighting the, the mine. Dave, I'm not sure there's any need to comment, is there? She said it all, didn't she? The only comment I'd make is thanks for playing that. Thanks for playing that. You know, that should be played and heard <laughs> because that just crystallises 250 years of neglect, disrespect and dangerous and completely shameful behaviours. So thanks for playing it. I'd love to have a Mr Whippy band put it on loud and just drive around. <laughs> yeah, we'll, we'll try and arrange it for you, Dave. I mean, we've got a similar situation at Adani where the minister um, just recently um, said that there was massive support for the Adani mine by the local Indigenous people up there, and yet they are disputing it, and indeed there's a court case um, taking place. Yeah, well, that's absolutely the case with Adani. There's, um, you know... Uh, you, you can't make 
that claim. It's wrong. There is strong and powerful and sustained Aboriginal opposition to Adani. And I think the, the key thing here is that comment... Well, there's many key things, but one was that comment that, um, that Deb made, Debbie Carmody made, that it's always First Nations people that are on the front line. Mm. And I've just come back from a week in regional South Australia where the federal government wants to dump radioactive waste. And Indigenous people there are leading the resistance but are also bearing the brunt of the impact and the pressure and the division and the stress from that resistance. And right across this country, in mining sector, in the wider extractive sector, in radioactive waste management, in trying to get old stuff cleaned up and trying to get new stuff stopped, it's Aboriginal people and voices that are really powerful, really sustained, and, um, you know, it's a great honour to work alongside them. And, Kevin, just if I could give a plug to a website, if there's any um, listeners who are interested in this issue, there's a, there's a network, it's not an organisation, it's a network or an alliance, ANTFA, the Australian Nuclear Free Alliance. It's been going for over two decades. It's a black-green alliance and public health and trade union as well, but predominantly environmental and driven by... Aboriginal people and organisations. So answer.org um, is a really interesting story of seeing people seeing shared issues, threats, values, and working and walking together to, um, to advance a nuclear-free future in Australia. Mm, fantastic. We'll put a link to that in our podcast. Great. Yeah. Thanks for that. On, the, on this mine, this uranium mine we're talking about, um, uranium... Mines generally use a hell of a lot of water, as we've talked about many times. What's the situation there with this one? Yeah, uh, not dissimilar. Um, significant uh, desert country, dry, arid country. It's, a, existing par- it's on a pastoral station of the same name, Yaliri. The proposal would see uh, 10 billion litres of water consumed. Um, so very significant. From where? From a, from a basin? A from basin a, from, that's right, from an underground aquifer. And the aquifer yeah. is where... Those subterranean critters live, the Steiger fauna, which uh, are the ones that would be sucked up and made extinct. They don't live anywhere else. Right, they so the, have, the creatures are living in the underground water. In the water. Right. They live in the water or they live in, in small gaps, Eugenia, just between the water and the, the substrate soils and layers. Yeah. Um, so, yeah, they, they would get hammered and 10 billion litres of water would be sucked up and the stuff that provides life would be sucked up and contaminated in the process of digging up a... That's 10 billion in what period? Sorry, That's over a 25-year period. All right, Okay. yeah. Right at the moment, though, the world's biggest mining company, BHP, has an application to expand the Olympic Dam mine. Um, Now, that is in northern South Australia, 500 k's north of Adelaide. That application has is seeking approval to extract from the Great Artesian Basin, which covers about 20%, 25% of Australia, from the Great Artesian Basin, 50 million litres of water each and every day from now till 2070 without another check or balance and without paying a cent into the public purse. Mm. That's crazy. So your commentary about the linkage of the voracious appetite of the uranium sector and the wider mining sector for water... Um, I think as people are growing aware, as we're seeing a million fish die, as we're seeing our rivers dry and people are going, oh, the dams are down in winter, we've got to have short showers, I think, I hope and I think there'll be a backlash against this absolutely wasteful squandering of our most precious resource. Mm. Mm. 
In the few couple of minutes we've got, we're only down about the last four minutes, Dave, but um, there's been a fair bit in the news about Linus, this Australian company that has a radioactive waste plant in Malaysia for material, in fact, that it's, it extracts in Australia. Um, this seems to be, again, a, a fairly interesting piece of um, regarding other people's countries as just a dumping ground. Yeah, that's very much the case. Linus is a is a company that mines rare earths. So rare earths are, you know, um, metallic um, or, or mineral elements. Um, there's about 16 or 17 of them. Um, and they're used in all sorts of particularly high-tech usages. Um, mm. So they mine in Western Australia. They then ship it for processing to Malaysia, where they've got a, a mineral processing plant. And they have around just under half a million tonnes of radioactive waste which is resulted from this processing which is on site in Malaysia. It's been strongly opposed by the local community and the Linus licence is up for renewal in the start of September of this year and the new Malaysian government has said to, uh, in April, they said to Linus, if you don't move, like physically move, the (laughs) half a million tonnes, you don't get your licence renewal. So that has really focused some sharp attention on this. and there's all sorts of closed-door chatter because at the same time, because Linus are a player in rare earths, which is not many are, China dominates 90% of it and it's used for a lot of smart tech, so it's a growing sector, Wes farmers are moving to uh, purchase Linus. They, we understand, have been in discussions with the Malaysian government and with uh, the federal government. Um, and uh, there's all this talk about either trying to see if they can revisit the Malaysian objection and get an extension or potentially look to see if they could bring that waste back to Australia, which is against Australian law. And indeed, the Western Australian government says it won't take it back. So um, once again, we're exporting our pollution. Well, absolutely. Look, it's a really really complicated legal and all that sort of stuff. But what you said, how you framed it, it's like, well, we'll just go to areas of lower governance and do stuff there. Mm. Like, it's uh, capital moves to where it can maximise and it doesn't really care that much about workers' rights, about social licence, about environmental impact and this is a case in point. Mm. All right, Dave, we're going to have to leave it there. We're running out of time but um, look, thanks for your time today. I'm sure we'll get you back. You'll be back shortly mm. because there's always things happening in this area, unfortunately. Sadly, there a, are and thanks well, so much to you well, and, and crew for, for amplifying or putting a bit of a light on it. Well, post-election, we might come up with some good news on all this. Live in hope. Yeah, that's right. <laughs> reside, reside in Preston and live in hope. Right. It's the best we can do, isn't it? Okay. <laughs> okay, thank you, Dave Thanks, Sweeney thank you. there. The, All the best. Dave's the anti-uranium campaigner, as you can probably tell, with the Australian Conservation Foundation, Eugenia. Yeah, he's always so interesting mm-hmm. to talk to, isn't he? He is. Next, next week's housing. Yep. Interesting again. Yep. Do and we have any special guests no, coming we'll up? have Housing with Age Action Group coming every month, so they'll be here with something yeah. and we'll update people on what's happening in other housing areas. and pre, uh, Some pre-election information, else. maybe. Yeah, there's a fair bit of happening in planning areas we might even talk to you about mm, next week. We'll exciting. see how it goes. Yeah, My field. Yeah. All right, see you next week, everyone, and stay tuned for Anarchist World this week.